0: Hi, I'm Lucienne Spencer. I'm a PhD student from Bristol University, and I'm pleased to have the opportunity to present my research for the BSP today. This talk has been adapted from one of my thesis chapters, in which I argue that we can better understand the full extent of the harm of hermeneutical injustice through Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology of speech expression. In Epistemic Injustice, Power and Ethics of Knowing, Miranda Fricker seeks to put a name to a philosophically neglected area of social injustice, where identity prejudice downgrades the epistemic status of the marginalized speaker. They're undermined in their status as a reliable knower. Fricker identifies two key forms of epistemic injustice. The first is testimonial injustice, where prejudice causes a hearer to afford a diminished level of credibility to a speaker's testimony. The second, which I believe to be underexplored in the literature, is hermeneutical injustice, where prejudice results in gaps in the hermeneutical resources, where experiences of marginalized groups ought to be. Let's take a look at Fricker's key example of hermeneutical injustice um, experienced by victims of sexual harassment in the workplace. So thankfully, we can now identify a case of sexual harassment fairly easily. This is a phenomenon that we can grasp, report, discuss and put policies in place to prevent. However, prior to the introduction of the term in the 1960s, it was extremely difficult for victims of sexual harassment to articulate the harm being inflicted upon them as sexual harassment was not yet part of the collective understanding. This gap in the interpretive framework derives from unequal participation in meaning-making practices. In the words of Fricker, unequal power can skew hermeneutical resources so that, the power, so that the powerful tend to have appropriate understandings of their experiences ready to draw on as they make sense of their social experiences. Whereas the powerless are more likely to find themselves having some social experiences through a glass darkly with at best ill-fitting meanings to draw on in the effort to render them intelligible. So due to the unequal participation in meaning making practices, the experiences of the sexually harassed were excluded from the interpretive framework. For this reason, instances of what we would now call sexual harassment were often dismissed as harmless, unwanted flirting. Consequently, the victim was not only incapable of reporting or discussing sexual harassment, they also lacked the hermeneutical resources to fully grasp the experience themselves. Okay, so Fricker identifies two forms of harm that emerge from epistemic injustice. There are primary harms and secondary harms. The secondary harm constitutes uh, practical repercussions that result from epistemic injustice. So for instance, due to the gap in the hermeneutical resources where the term sexual harassment ought to have been, people who have been sexually harassed would have been unable to file a report against the harasser. Then there are primary harms in epistemic injustice, which Fricker refers to as intrinsic harms, where the victim is undermined in their very nature as a knowing subject. Something that is essential to human nature is undermined. In Fricker's words, the intrinsic nature of the primary harm derives from its ability to go more or less deep in the psychology of the subject. Where it goes deep, it can cramp self-development. She argues that this primary harm can constitute, which can constitute what she refers to as cognitive dissonance. Okay, so what is cognitive dissonance? The term cognitive dissonance is rooted in the field of psychology and is used to describe the experience of psychological distress that arises from two or more conflicting beliefs or desires pulling the subject in opposite directions. The classic example is a conflict in the desire to give up smoking and the desire to have another cigarette. In order to ease psychological discomfort, the dissonance between two beliefs or desires compels the cognitive agent to disregard one in favour of the other, to smoke or not to smoke. As our lives are filled with a plethora of choices and ideas that often appear equally worthy, We resolve cognitive dissonance on a regular basis. Our interest here is in the cognitive dissonance that is not so easily resolved, with a focus on the seemingly psychological turmoil that ensues. Fricka wields the term cognitive dissonance in two distinct ways. First, it's used to explain the experience of conflict between prejudicial and non-prejudicial beliefs. Imagine a person who has been raised to hold the belief that homosexuality is a form of sexual deviance. Over time, this belief might stand in opposition with the observation that such ideas are unfounded and homophobic. Here, Fricker appeals to cognitive dissonance as a tool for self-reflection, that forces us to jettison our prejudicial beliefs regarding the untrustworthiness of a marginalized group in favor of beliefs that better align with our perceptual judgments. However, when Fricker turns to the subject of hermeneutical injustice in her final chapter, cognitive dissonance seems to take on a new form. In this instance, dissonance, I suggest, captures a disparity in meaning making. As Fricker claims, authoritative constructions in the shared hermeneutical resource create a sense of dissonance between an experience and the various constructions that are ganging up to overpower its nascent proper meaning. Here the subject is torn between two conflicting ideas, the personal understanding and the collective understanding. Unlike Fricker's first conception of cognitive dissonance, here the central focus is on the psychological ramifications of Two conflicting beliefs. In an instance of hermeneutical injustice, psychological discomfort is not so easily resolved and has a lasting impact upon the victim. In the words of Fricker, when you find yourself in a situation in which you seem to be the only one to feel the dissonance between received understanding and your own intimated sense of a given experience, it tends to knock your faith in your own ability to make sense of the world or at least the relevant region of the world. Fricker takes this idea further, arguing that by moving between these two perspectives, the personal and the collective, the marginalised subject experiences a fractured sense of self. Fricker illustrates this through the case of Edmund White, who describes an internal battle for a homosexual identity that fits his experiences as a gay man this battle is an arduous one, as his own sense of self is repeatedly confronted by seemingly persuasive homophobic stereotypes that depict his identity as as a sickness. Fricker concludes that the cognitive dissonance experienced by White constitutes a fractured sense of self. Through Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology of speech expression, I'll proceed to argue that cognitive dissonance of the hermeneutical kind has phenomenological ramifications that go well beyond mere psychological discomfort. Drawing on Merleau-Ponty in what follows, I'll argue that the dissonance is not a division in the mind, but a division between the embodied subject and the external world. Okay, so now I'll offer a brief sketch of Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology of speech expression. I'll not be able to do justice to his account here, Um, but I aim to illustrate the key points necessary for my argument. Consider immigrating to a foreign country without knowing the language. You arrive to find the environment around you appears ambiguous and formless, and your movement through it is inhibited. Initially, this observation may appear philosophically uninteresting. Of course, you would be unable to identify certain objects due to their cultural signification, and you wouldn't be able to communicate with other people, which would restrict your ability to form interpersonal relationships. However, say those particular hurdles are overcome by acquiring a comprehensive guide to the culture and uh, taking language classes until you're proficient. Merleau-Ponty suggests that you would be unable to fully belong to this world. Um, and this is due to the fact that language requires a being in the world. So according to Merleau-Ponty, the full sense of a language is never translatable into another. We can speak several languages, but one of them always remains the one in which we live. In order to wholly assimilate a language, it would be necessary to take up the world it expresses, and we never belong to two worlds at the same time. So Merleau-Ponty proposes that understanding a language requires a taking up of the world and inhabitation of the environment. Language is the core structure of our being in the world, and it's a form of bodily comportment that discloses the meaning of the world and is therefore central to our ability to move through the environment with a pre-reflective openness. The chapter entitled The Body is Expression and Speech in the Phenomenology Perception acts as a crescendo to Merleau-Ponty's discussion on the embodied subject. This chapter not only ties together the preceding ideas on the relationship between subject, body and world, but ultimately paints a fully formed portrait of the embodied subject. Merleau-Ponty goes on to show that speech expression underpins the embodied subjects relationship with the world. Okay, so let's have a recap of Merleau-Ponty's idea of the body schema. For Merleau-Ponty, the body is the infrastructure for all expressive activity. The lived through world is mediated by the body schema. The body schema acts as a blueprint for a system of bodily skills needed to interact with the environment, and it adjusts spontaneously to the task at hand. The body schema predisposes the simplest of actions, such as when I sat down on this chair. I didn't need to think about it, I didn't need to attend to my body in any way, I just habitually, my body prepared, to embrace the object in its environment, the chair. The body schema then is a set of possibilities and the world presents itself as offering certain opportunities for interaction. These are known as affordances. Gallagher and Sahavi provide a, a good example of this. In a particular instance, I might see my car as a practical vehicle that I can use to get me to where I'm going. In another instance, I might see the exact same object that's something I I have to clean or something I have to sell or something that is not working properly. The body schema is the body's grasp of its possibilities to interact with these affordances. And this underpins the harmonious engagement of body and world. So for Merleau-Ponty, speech expression constitutes one of the possibilities of the body schema. Initially, it might appear trivial to identify speech as a bodily act. Speaking is of course a corporal act as it requires vocal cords among other bodily functions in order to be carried out. More significantly however, speech expression is a manner in which I can employ my body to engage with the world. Speech is part of my bodily comportment and speaking is a manner of interacting with the complex tapestry of meaning in the world. Speech expression doesn't signify meaning, rather the words are saturated with meaning, which allows others to grasp the sense of our speech. Like other embodied acts, once we have learned how to correctly wield a word, we can brandish it in new and different social situations that retain their sense against the meaningful backdrop of our environment. Thus, a form of bodily expression, speech holds gestural meaning, in the words of Merleau-Ponty, speech is a gesture and its signification is a world. This brings me to another important aspect of Merlo pontys speech expression. As a gesture, speech expression is the accomplishment of thought. So recall, for Merleau-Ponty, gesture is not superfluous to thought or a mere additional flourish. Rather, gesture is thought. In the words of merleau Ponti, the gesture does not make me think of anger. It is anger itself. Uh, No inference is necessary. Gesture does not signify meaning, but it is meaning itself. Prior to expression, the gesture merely lingers in the subject's mind as a vague fever. Only through expression can it achieve reality. So too with the gesture of speech expression. The meaning of the word is not hidden somewhere between the symbols, but is saturated in its very expression. It follows that the word is no mere vessel for thought, but the external accomplishment of thought. A thought prior to expression would, according to Merleau-Ponty, fall into the unconscious the moment it appears, which amounts to saying that it would not even exist for itself. Through speech expression, the thought achieves a certain place in the world. Merleau-Ponty describes speech expression as something that is essential for human existence. The only exception he identifies are those who suffer from aphasia, uh, an illness of um, a physical language impairment. Yet, through the work of Fricker, it becomes apparent that this basic human capacity is not afforded to everyone, and exclusion from the linguistic institution is not limited to those with a physical impairment. If we are to concede that speech expression is a gesture in itself and one of the possible uses of the body, It follows that hermeneutical injustice constitutes a disruption in the body schema and hence a disruption in the embodied subjects being in the world. I propose that the dissonance that Fricker identifies as the primary harm of a hermeneutical injustice can be better understood as an embodied dissonance. Consider again uh, Fricker's victim of sexual harassment. In most environments, when she prepares to make a speech expression, she can draw from a wealth of hermeneutical resources with ease. She successfully employs her body into an act of speech expression, and she moves through the world in a pure fluid action with a pre-reflective openness. However, to express her experience of what we now know to be sexual harassment, she falters. Her body is primed to launch into a speech act. However, she remains stunted as the necessary speech gesture is nowhere to be found. With the much needed hermeneutical resource missing from the interpretive framework, it's as though she prepares to extend her arm to reach for an object, only to find that her limb is missing. In the words of Merleau-Ponty, thought tends towards expression as towards its completion without being able to accomplish her thought through speech expression, it remains in the fleeting and uncertain stage of what Merleau-Ponty refers to as the vague fever. What I have in mind here is a phenomenological disruption similar to that identified in the work of feminist phenomenologist Iris Marion Young. Young develops a phenomenological account of the female body experience as an antithesis to the unification of body and world discussed at length by Merleau-Ponty. She argues that unlike men, women cannot move out to master a world that belongs to them, a world constituted by their own intentions and projections. In other words, defined by her social status, Young argues that the female body is unable to engage with the world in the same way as her male counterparts. The male body pre-reflectively interacts with the possibilities offered by the world. Say, um, a basketball is thrown through a hoop, a hand is firmly shaken, a rickety bridge is confidently traversed. For the female body, however, when she attempts to throw her body into action, she is restrained by timidity uncertainty and hesitancy. Young observes that this reservation to throw one's body into action is typical of the female female lived experience. Stunting what ought to be a pure fluid action towards the world. In this instance, Young observes she remains rooted in imminence, is inhibited and retains a distance from her body as transcending movement, and from engagement in the world's possibilities. As such, she experiences a disconnect between body and world. And this is what I refer to as an embodied dissonance. I argue that hermeneutically marginalised experience, um, the hermeneutically marginalised experience much the same phenomenological disruption as one is robbed of the fundamental bodily capacity of speech expression. If one is unable to speak, an essential form of interaction with the world is abruptly halted. Their very being in the world is disrupted through the limitation of possibilities to engage one's body with the world. In the words of Jung, there is a world for a subject just in so far as the body has capacities by which it can approach, grasp and appropriate its surroundings in the direction of its intentions. The direct uh, through the disruption of speech expression, the hermeneutically marginalized are deprived of the bodily capacity for speech expression and, as such, cannot approach, grasp, and appropriate their environment in the same way as their hermeneutically privileged counterparts. Having encountered a gap in the hermeneutical climate, the environment no longer appears to invite possibilities for action, rather, it appears hostile and unaccommodating. Without speech expression, the hermeneutically marginalised can no longer orientate themselves in the world or a particular part of the world. I believe this may better explain the fractured sense of self Fricker identifies as a product of hermeneutical injustice. It's for this reason that filling a hermeneutical, hermeneutical gap is experienced as more than merely settling a psychological discomfort. Rather, Fricker describes it as an astonishing and life-changing cognitive achievement. I suggest that such a hermeneutical feat is indeed life-changing, as it transforms the vague fever of, say, an experience of sexual harassment into a concrete and meaningful speech gesture, And then in turn, the subject may once again experience an uninhibited body schema projected forth into the world. So to conclude, I hope to have demonstrated that a phenomenological approach reveals the full extent of the harm produced by hermeneutical injustice. In light of Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology of speech expression, I argue that hermeneutical injustice causes a disruption of the patterns of embodiment in marginalized subjects, who are unable to engage with the world in the same way as their hermeneutically privileged counterparts. Consequently, overcoming a hermeneutical lacuna does not merely ease a psychological discomfort, rather it re-establishes the subject's body-world synthesis, securing their being in the world.